HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I've got Naomi Starkman on the line. Naomi is the founder and editor-in-chief of Civil Eats, a daily news source for critical thought about the American food system. Naomi, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having us, Lisa. So it's it's funny. Um, I you know I was thinking about this before the show. I've been writing for Civil Eats for more than three years now, and we still have never met. <laughs> and now <laughs> now I have you on the show, and we're going to have this conversation. And you're still all the way across the country, and we're not actually meeting in person, but. At least we're talking on the radio. <laughs> yes. And, you know, that's actually really common for so many of our writers. We have, you know, over 150 freelance reporters nationwide. And so 
we often don't meet our writers and reporters, but I'm, I'm really pleased to talk with you today. Great. Um, yeah, so I invited you on because Civil Eats is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Um, and, and that strikes me as really meaningful for a lot of reasons. But one thing that stood out to me is, um, you know, you probably heard in the, the drop before the show started that Heritage Radio Network is also celebrating its 10th year. Um, and I've been thinking about that all season and I keep hearing other examples of food movement initiatives that started about a decade ago. For example, um, some of the biggest urban farms in New York, like the Brooklyn Grange and Gotham Greens both started about 10 years ago. I wanted, I was thinking a cool place to start would be to ask you, do you think that's a coincidence or is there some unique moment in time around 2009 when something was sort of shifting in the conversation about the food system? I do, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think all of these incredible endeavors happened at a time when people were starting to really think more concretely about our food system. Salit started actually as a result of Slow Food Nation in 2008 in San Francisco, which for many was a watershed moment um, in our country looking at the issues around food and farming. I was part of the planning team for that event. We had this massive celebration in San Francisco. Over 85,000 people came. We had a victory garden in front of City Hall. We had speakers, and we had this incredible showcasing of the best of sustainable agriculture um, in the nation that weekend. And I was part of a team that helped put together a website, and right in the middle of that website was a blog. And it was really a place to have a platform for conversation around food systems. And right before the event, the weekend of Labor Day um, over 2008, we had close to a million people on the site. And so I think, you know, that was this, this moment when I realized that there was really no meaningful online news source thinking about the nuanced and complex situation of our food system. And that's when I started Civil Eats with a former co-founder, Paula Crossfield. But all of these endeavors, including Heritage Radio and the amazing urban farms you mentioned, they all were happening at a time when people were starting to think and act more around the issues around our food system. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that was the first Slow Food Nations event? Yes, and at the time it was just called Slow Food Nation, yes, and it was um, sort of the original one, and then uh, it took Slow Food a number of years to kind of decide what the next move would be, and then they started Slow Food Nations in Denver, and they're having another one, I think, this month. And that's happening this month, and Heritage Radio is actually going to be broadcasting from there, and I have, um, my guest next week is actually um, a woman who is speaking at Slow Food Nation, so there's a lot of of overlap happening. all over the place. Um, so, so you started out of this kind of moment, um, in time and as this blog, right on, on the website, um, what are some of the biggest ways that civil eats has changed in the past decade since then? You know, for the first four years, um, civil eats operated with no funding. It was really Mm -hmm. a labor of love, or as I like to say, a love of labor, um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. and, and over the last 10 years, we, we really achieved significant impact and reach, you know, we, we raised an unprecedented $100,000 via Kickstarter in 2013, we were named the publication of the year in 2014 by the James Beard Foundation, 
And I was named um, a 2015 Jonas Knight Fellow at Stanford to look at the issues and the intersectionality around food journalism um, and independent media. And so I think as an organization, as a news organization, we have uh, not only built our, our street cred, and, or sometimes I like to call it our dirt cred, um, but we've really been able to um, be at the forefront of reporting on the food system um, we, when we started in 2009, there really were no major media outlets focused on food and these other issues. And I think a decade later, um, I like to think that we have led the change in helping to create a robust public discourse. Um, and we've also demonstrated in our reporting that business and health and cultural and socioeconomic stories reach far more people through the lens of the American food system. Mm. Well, and it's such an interesting point because I—I I mean, I think that's the the one thing for me that really sets Civil Eats apart is that, um, you know, it's really one of the only publications still covering the food system, um, with an eye towards like sustainable agriculture and food justice and food equity, but also just kind of looking like what you said, you know, looking at business and politics and um, immigration and all of these other issues through the lens of food. Um, and I mean, there's a few other publications that have sprung up since then, but I guess for me, it, it feels surprising that there aren't more mainstream news outlets covering all of these, covering the intersection of all of these issues. Like, do you think that that's going to continue to evolve? It's a really good question. I mean, I will first say that, you know, we are unique in the media landscape. Mm. Um, and as you said, I think you know, food justice has been central to our reporting since our inception. And I would say particularly we have played a role in demonstrating the connection between right. race and environmental health. And so looking at the intersectionality of those issues, as you mentioned, is really core to what we do as a news organization. We have noted and demonstrated in our reporting that people of color are disproportionately impacted by the food and ag system. So I think Salutes has broken new ground on covering issues of access and equity and justice, and we've also cultivated diverse voices and reporters. Um, I think there is a shift slightly. We have been sharing our content with mainstream media since 2014, so with Time mm. at Yahoo Food when it was a vertical, no right. longer is. We had a <laughs> we had a syndicated partnership <laughs> with Food and Wine. We have a syndication with partnership with Eater. Right. So I think you're seeing. Um, Mainstream media take an interest in these topics. We we partner with NBC News, The Guardian, HuffPost, New York Magazine. So we are filling a news hole that I think matters for many, many organizations, but they are just catching up to looking and thinking deeply about these issues. Right. I guess it's just they, they haven't sort of figured out that coverage yet for themselves, so they're coming to you to, to help with that, um, which is a good thing. And then maybe, maybe more outlets will start to do it on their own as well. Um, so, and so that's sort of like talking about how civil elites has changed and, and the media is changing. Um, you've also been asking really big questions in recognition of the anniversary, just about how the food system has changed in the past 10 years. Um, you know, you did an article about, you know, are people eating healthier 10 years later and how have perceptions of GMOs and pesticides changed? Um, and you're talking to different leaders in the food movement about those topics. Um, what do you think have the takeaways been so far for you? Yeah, it's been 
it's been really, really interesting. We decided as a way to kind of support our 10th anniversary and kind of mark the year by talking to leading experts in the field around all these different topics that we've been reporting on for over a decade. Um, and you mentioned some of them. We actually started with climate change because we felt that the issue was so important. Um, and we talked about four different experts for each round table. We record the conversation and then we edit it um, and publish it on Civil Leads. And it's been fascinating, frankly. I mean, many of these people who have been participating as experts, farmers, academics, policy people, they've been working on these issues obviously longer than a decade. So, mm. for example, we have one that we'll be publishing hopefully next week on the state of organics. Mm. And we talk with Kathleen Merrigan. Um, and, you know, she's been doing this work for 30 years. And so... Right. <laughs> while we're while we're saying, oh goodness, you know, this is what we've been reporting on for the last ten years. Many of these individuals are longtime advocates, farmers, workers in this space. Um, I would say the biggest takeaway would be that a lot has changed. So back to your first question, right? Like, what was happening ten years mm. ago that all these organizations and farms and things were taking place? I think we had a general momentum where people started understanding that food is the tip of the environmental arrow. And so people started understanding that there's a system behind how food and agriculture is produced in this country. And all these pieces and parts started coming together. And so the folks that we've been talking to have been, in, at least in my point of view, have been really demonstrating how many people are involved in food systems that there isn't just one expert, there isn't just one group, there isn't just one point of view. There are many, many, many people. Um, and that's sort of the point. And I think it kind of relates to our reporting in that no matter who is in office, you have incredible people who are really on the front lines of making change in our food system. Right. And that, that's, that's a very dramatic um, place to, to sit and sort of notice that, you know, together all these projects and people are building a new food system. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it does seem like, um, I mean, from where I sit and I'm reporting on this kind of stuff all the time, it's like you, you do see all of these different people doing all this work. Um, but you know, I, I also, I see a lot, um, I see a lot of, data that is like a little bit disappointing too. You know, I, one thing I was going to bring up was, um, the latest, um, ag census data. Um, and, and that was so discouraging to me just about the state of, um, the agricultural system. Um, you know, it showed we're sort of still losing all these mid-sized farms while the biggest farms get bigger and the average age of the American farmer still continues to rise. Um, you, you mentioned organic, and I, I wonder if this will be in um, the article that you publish next week, but, you know, the amount of actual land that is certified organic is still minuscule. Um, I guess I'm curious, why do, why do you think that, especially in terms of agriculture, um, the food movement hasn't made bigger strides, like with all this momentum that was building 10 years ago? A really good question. Um, I, I don't have one simple answer for it. I think there's so many different reasons. I mean, I think there, as you mentioned, um, you know, 
that there's just one percent of farmland in organic production. You know, and yeah, it's actually like are, significantly less than one percent. <laughs> yeah, less and than less than one. It keeps going up, but um, it, it's like going up closer to one percent, and you're like, well, what? Correct. <laughs> correct. Anyway. Yeah. So it's so right, right? So then mm. you've got okay, so you've got like you know approximately one percent right. of farmland in in organic production, and then you've got you know demand far outstripping supply, and then you have got lots of issues around um, reports around fraudulent organic imports mm-hmm. and questions around the integrity of the organic seal, and you've got um, new efforts to make new standards. You know, there's a lot of internal debate around the uh, efficacy of USDA organic. You've got an administration that's not been particularly supportive of sustainable agriculture. You've got... Um, folks kind of on both ends you've Mm -hmm. got kind of like what some people would call big organic so some folks feel like that's greenwashing of organic you've got lots of folks who feel like there's it's time to shift to what they're calling regenerative right regenerative organic and so there's a lot there's lots and lots and lots of people who are looking at this issue from a lot of different ways um at the same time I think people do care. I think in general, there's a consensus that people care about where their food comes from and primarily how they're feeding themselves and their family. Um, Why it hasn't grown or what are some of the pressure points for its lack of success is really kind of comes down to research dollars, conservation dollars, support for programs that really support different methods of farming, helping incentivize farmers, you know, like the Healthy Soils Initiative in California, ways in which we're trying to find support for farmers, producers, new and beginning farmers, the Young Farmers uh, Coalition, National Young Farmers Coalition, and the work that they do, you know, it's so essential because it's not just about the farmers now, it's about bringing new farmers into farming and keeping them there. So a lot of it stems from kind of top-down, the grassroots and grass-tops efforts to support organics so that farmers can transition. And the other interesting thing is that we're seeing this tremendous, tremendous interest in technology and food, so ag tech. Mm. And there's billions and billions of dollars on the table around food, and yet it's really not for farming, right? It's really for Mm -hmm. kind of newfangled food stuff. What would it look like if we had a you know trillion dollar investment in farming and food right systems and like building and soil? Things, yeah, building health, soil yeah. health, or you know building kind of the bricks and mortar pieces. I always say that you know food hubs are incredibly unsexy, but they're kind of the most important piece to help small to medium sized farmers scale. You know, we're talking about things like mm-hmm. transportation, refrigeration, distribution, things that are really not you know like a like a moonshot, but really matter in terms of helping more people get access to better and fresher food. Right. I love those unsexy topics, but I'm a... <laughs> I know that's why your reporting is so important. And also for I wrote a story about, so about food hubs for Civilly Eats, and I'm sure I was like, can we make this more a little sexier, Lisa? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I know. Anybody who listen will just beat on our food, on our food hub drum. Right. <laughs> Um, We have to take a quick break. Um, When we come back, I want to dig a little more into um, politics and policy and and some of the ways that um, you mentioned of sort of incentivizing um, changing food and agriculture. Um, We'll be right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late nights seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I have been talking to Naomi Starkman, the founder and editor-in-chief of Civil Eats, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. So I want to talk a little bit about politics. Um, We're in this moment where there's so many people um, running for office, you can't even remember their names. Um, (laughs) And you did an incredible service at Civil Eats, which is you published a guide to where the Democratic presidential candidates stand on food and agriculture. Um, I'm curious, were a lot of them talking, thinking about agriculture and like, do they actually have plans and are they bringing them up in their campaign events? I think they are. I mean, thank you for, for noting that. That was a huge effort on our part to pull together an overview on where now all 25 Democratic <laughs> candidates oh stand on The number on keeps food like going up or anyway, sorry. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. um, and also, you know, we, we, um, we've been tracking it. So it's a story that we'll continue to watch and we'll continue to update. Um, mm. I mean, certainly a number of the candidates, um, you know, ranging from the well-known like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, they have certainly been talking about food and agriculture um, as elected officials for a number of years. I, I think what's different and what you're seeing this year that's surprising is that they're leading with corporate consolidation mm. and specifically and, and specifically they're talking about uh, giant agribus. And so, you know, Elizabeth Warren in particular, you know, they've They've come out with very strong um, antitrust campaigns, talking about breaking up big agribiz, looking at the issues around rural America, and talking specifically. I mean, the first Democratic debate was um, in the Heartland. It was in Iowa. Um, you know, looking at those issues, talking about those issues, knowing that the people in the middle of the country um, matter and the issues that they face around food and farming matter, and it matters for the rest of the country. So. Um, the debates that just took place there, you know, if you were just to kind of guide yourself on whether the candidates care about food and farming, they weren't asked about food and farming. Only a mm. few of the candidates responded to um, some of the questions by mentioning food and farming. Um, but, you know, it's been it's been it's been interesting to see. And I know that there's been some discussion about having a specific debate around climate change. Any conversation about climate change has to talk about agriculture because agriculture really can be a solution for climate change. And we've done extensive reporting on that issue. And so I, I, I hope to see in the coming debates more of a discussion focusing on farming. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting you brought up the um, corporate consolidation because I, I um, 
Cory Booker too has int- actually introduced legislation that would address like agribusiness consolidation, right? I don't remember where that's at at this point, but um, it, and it, he and uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, introduced a ban um, on no poaching policies. So you know, they both have been looking at, and that's specifically for fast food franchisers. So looking at issues around. Um, merger moratoriums for large food and farm companies, um, looking at, you know, increasing transparency and accountability for commodity checkoff dollars. And Booker's been talking about farm policy, you know, for several years. So some of the candidates are very versed in the topics. Others are kind of getting up to speed and talking about carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and then there's folks like Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, um, who, you know, have made their entire platform focus as, uh, you know, on climate change. And as I mentioned, that is a direct, there's a direct impact on how agriculture uh, interacts with climate change. And so um, I think, I think we will be seeing more uh, kind of detailed reports, but, you know, there's so much at stake in the country right now. Mm -hmm. I am not the first to feel distressed, I think, about um, the high stakes and also, you know, kind of almost like the future of our democracy. So right. for men, I think for many, you know, food and farming may feel like it's tangential or ancillary or it should be on the back burner when in many ways it's a critical component to the success of our country. Do, yeah. Do you think that um, has Civil Eats been paying more attention to policy and government and politics in in this these past few years than before like in this moment where if things feel kind of like you said a little bit fraught and and scary in terms of you know or a lot's at stake I guess I mean you know we've been paying as much attention to policy um, as we normally do right so mm-hmm. looking at issues from all aspects, you know, from farm worker justice to how dairy farmers are impacted. I mean, you've reported quite a bit as well on dairy farmers mm. um, in New York and in other places. And thinking about what policies are going to uh, around trade and tariffs and how um, America's farmers are going to really continue to exist um, and, and not just succeed um, and survive, but really thrive. So I think our policy reporting is as deep as it ever has been. I mean, we look at nutrition policy, you know, we're looking at food, food school, uh, school food policy. We also look at places in which policy is really taking off, like we did this profile on Maine's new ag commissioner and mm. really creating a focus of sustainable, healthy, and just um, food in her region. And so um, there's regional examples of, of policymakers who are really trying to make a difference, but at the national level, we're seeing more of an undoing of policies um, that at least have government oversight over things like toxic toxins and pollutants, pesticides, and things of that nature. Right. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about the just policies that. Um, don't sort of, well, I was thinking about this in the context of the story that I just wrote for Civil Eats on the um, EPA rule um, on um, CAFOs not having to report emissions of um, substances like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. And I think a lot of times stories like that um, on policy and farming end up pitting um, farm groups against environmental groups. And, you know, I, I, I struggle with that in, in trying to sort of not do that in just the reporting, but 
there's this thing that happens with policy where it's like you, you're either on the side of the farmer or the environmentalist, and those two things are not the same. And it and it's so frustrating to me because, you know, really the interest everyone's interests are really in, in the same place, but we just don't see them that way. You know, I, I mean, is that something that you've thought about? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that goes long. There's a long history of there being tension between farmers and environmentalists. But I will say that it's shifting. I mean, I, I think organizations like the National Farmers Union is really making strides and connecting dots for farmers that they, again, are solutions. They are mm-hmm. on the side of the environment. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, there's been a knee-jerk reaction that anytime you talk about, you know, farmers, that somehow they're the problem and they're to blame. And there are a lot of people, very, a lot of farmers are very sensitive to that rhetoric. Right. Um, and I think um, being really thoughtful and mindful about profiling farmers who are doing it right, and we do this, we have a you know farmer of the month, we profile farmers who we feel are really working in concert with nature and who are real stewards of the land and pioneers in their communities. There's a way to be able to change and shift that narrative to be able to really say to people, look, these farmers are doing the best they can. And again, it goes back to that question of what resources are being allocated to them. Do they have the means to be able to transform 7,000 acres in Indiana like one farmer? We just profiled Rick Clark. And, you know, what does it look like to have policies that support farmers to practice agriculture in a way that's um, in harmony, uh, not just for people, but for the planet? So, I do think that dichotomy and the, the tension that you're referring to is real, and I think there's a way in your reporting and our reporting to really try to harmonize those topics and show ways in which farmers are doing their best to produce food for this country in a way that's least impactful and also beneficial um, and really is meeting a triple bottom line. Right. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, you know, you're sort of doing a lot of reflection for the 10 year anniversary, looking back at um, the work that Civil Eats has done and what has changed in terms of food and agriculture. Um, But I would imagine you're looking back, you're also looking forward at the next 10 years and however many more. Um, What do you see um, as sort of the most important topics Civil Eats will be covering going forward and just what the future has in store for the site? Well, we'd be really lucky if we're still around in 10 years. I mean, sometimes I'm amazed we've been around this long, <laughs> given given the complete um, meltdown in media. It's, right. it's a very, very, very challenging landscape to operate in. I would hope be very grateful to be able to grow and be able to produce more stories, more in-depth reporting, video stories, uh, stories for television to reach a broader audience. I've always said that if we could just get people to pay attention to these issues in USA Today and particularly in Parade Magazine, then we've really made a difference. Mm. We really want to shift shift the conversation from the echo chambers um, and inside our, our bubbles into really getting to more people. That's why it's always been our particular effort to work with mainstream media. Um, so really working to shift that narrative to really push the needle forward to try to reach more people. 
Um, and I would say, you know, like last year, for example, we started a new reporting initiative on rural America, and that's been very, very important to us to be able to continue to do that kind of reporting, to be able to send reporters in their communities to do on-the-ground frontline reporting is really important to us. We just did this big report with NBC News on farm workers in the Central Valley who are contracting valley fever. Twilight Greenway, mm. our contributing editor, um, former managing editor, wrote that story, um, and we did it in conjunction with NBC News, and they did a small video story that accompanied it, and that was seen by, you know, thousands and thousands of people to be able to tell the story of farm workers who are being impacted, frankly, by a climate change story. Right. Um, it's so important to shifting what people think about climate change and who is on the front lines of climate change. So... I think doing those kinds of stories, being able to continue to shed light on un- underreported critical issues around our food system, you know, it's been one of the greatest privileges for me personally, and I hope we can continue to do more in the future. Yeah, I think that bridging that urban-rural um, divide is is so huge right now. I mean, we've been hearing so much about it over the past few years, and you know, rural rural America um, just sort of being ignored, especially in the, in the terms of, in terms of agriculture. And it is so. I mean, that's something that I live every day, which is you know, as a reporter who lives in a city and wants to cover farming, it's like you know, I can go out and do a story, but to cover to cover something in Iowa or in you know, Kansas or any, it's like, it takes a lot of resources. And like you said, journalism is, you know, in a little bit of a tricky uh, state right now. And a lot of publications don't have the resources to send people out there. And so a lot of people want to tell those stories, but it's hard to do it. And I, I mean, I think that project is, is just so valuable. And I, you know, I hope that other people will follow that lead and be reporting, just more on, um, you know, not just urban. I feel like urban farming gets a lot of times just gets more attention because that's where media is, you know, <laughs> it's like, that's right. And the, and it's right. And, you know, I think there are people that are trying to change that. I mean, Art Cullen is really yeah. working to try to bring rural farm politics to this national stage. You know, he's the Pulitzer prize winning news editor from the storm Lake, um, publication in Iowa. And he was part of that Iowa debate that I mentioned earlier in the heartland for the first democratic debate. So I think, really trying to address the urgency of climate change in the Corn Belt and also the impacts of agribusiness in their communities and rural communities is essential for urban coastal folks to understand, our audience in particular. And so um, connecting on those issues, making them relevant, you know, every single story we write, and you know this from all of our edits too, it's like, why does this story matter? <laughs> why, should somebody, why should somebody read this story? And so at the heart of that is that we are focusing on people and place and projects that make a difference. And why we should care is because as humans, we have empathy to understand that these people are in our country. We're all part of a community. We're all part of a, of a unique ecosystem that, that we call America. And so rural America is a, is a long forgotten part of that story. We are trying our best to report on those topics. I hope we can continue to. There are many, many reporters who are already doing that in the middle of the country, and they need our support as well. Absolutely. Um, Well, I think we need to wrap up. Um, Thank you so much, Naomi, for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your time. Lisa, thank you for all you do for your reporting for Civil Leads and for producing this excellent radio show. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.